Proctor here with some announcements before we get into this week's episode. Strange Loop is coming up. Strange Loop is a multidisciplinary conference that brings together the developers and thinkers building tomorrow's technologies in fields such as programming languages, databases, distributed systems, AI and machine learning, security, and the web. It will be held in St. Louis, Missouri on September 28th through the 30th at the Peabody Opera House. There are still a few tickets available for Strange Loop, and Friday, September 8th is the last day for regular rate tickets. Visit thestrangeloop.com to keep updated and for more information. BWL Conf 2017 is the second full-day Papers We Love conference, co-located with the pre-conference events at Strange Loop in St. Louis, Missouri on September 28th. Last year's event was a great success, with talks ranging from designing network systems to game engines. The conference intends to bring academia and industry within reach of one another, hoping to foster stronger collaboration and mutual appreciation across respective fields. Tickets are $40 with an optional donation and free if you're a student or a recipient of a Strange Loop Opportunity Grant. Keep an eye out for updates on pwlconf.org. ElmConf is returning to St. Louis on September 28, 2017 for a day of learning, speaking, and connecting with the Elm language community. ElmConf will once again be co-locating with Strange Loop, and the conference will run on Strange Loop's pre-conference day. For tickets and for more information, visit www.elm-conf.us. OpenFSharp will be taking place the 28th and 29th of September in San Francisco. Taking place in the heart of San Francisco, OpenFSharp features two days of F-Sharp talks and workshops with world-class speakers and a unique opportunity to connect with the F-Sharp community and some of its key contributors, all while learning about the latest developments in the F-Sharp ecosystem. For more information and to register, visit OpenFSharp.org. RacketCon is October 7th and 8th at the University of Washington and includes one day of speakers and one day of collaborative hacking. Their keynote speakers are the CS professors Dan Friedman, co-author of the classic reference Essentials of Programming Languages, and Will Bird, inventor of Minicanron. Details and tickets are available through the webpage at con.racket-ling.org. Celebrate the 10th anniversary of the release of Closure, October 12th to the 14th at the Closure Conge in Baltimore, Maryland. The schedule and speakers have been announced and registration is open. For more information, visit 2017.closure-conj.org. Lambda World is back, taking place in Cadiz, Spain on October 26th and 27th. Early bird tickets are sold out, but student tickets and regular price tickets are still available. For more information, visit www.lambda.world. Code Mesh will be taking place the 8th and 9th of November. Keynote speakers David Turner and Margot Siltzer are already confirmed. Speakers have been announced and early bird ticket sales have started. For more details and to register, visit www.codemesh.io. MoonConf will be taking place in Phoenix, Arizona, November 9th through the 11th. MoonConf is a three-day conference for the functional program community to learn and celebrate together. There will be single-track talks on Thursday and Friday and an all-day open space on conference on Saturday. For more information, visit www.moonconf.org. Closure Sync is a new conference by the creator of PurelyFunctional.tv, Eric Normand. Set in New Orleans in February 15th and 16th of 2018, Closure Sync is all about the craft, business, and culture of closure. Go to ClosureSync.com, that's Closure, S-Y-N-C, dot com, to sign up. Lambda Days 2018 will be taking place February 2nd and 23rd in Krakow, Poland. 2018 Lambda Days Call for Papers is now open. Submit your proposal for a chance to join Jose Valim, Feline Hermins, Philip Wadler, 
Heather Miller, and others on their stage in February. The call for talks is open until October 30th, and a research track is available as well. The last very early bird tickets are on sale. Get them all you can. And if you don't manage to catch the very early bird tickets, don't worry. Early bird ticket sales start on October 1st and will last for a month. For more information, to submit your talk proposal, and to register, visit www.lambdadays.org. And if you know of any other conferences around functional programming, email contact at functionalgeekery.com, and I'll be happy to announce them. Also, some of you have mentioned that you would like to show support for Functional Geekery. In that vein, Functional Geekery now has a Patreon page. If that is how you would like to show your support, you can find out more at www.patreon.com slash fngeekery. And a giant virtual hug goes out to all those who are already supporting the podcast. Lastly, if you're enjoying Functional Geekery, please help spread the word. If you would leave a rating and or review on iTunes or your favorite podcast directory, or even share your favorite episodes on social media, I need your help to spread the word about Functional Geekery. And if there are any guests or topics that you want to hear from or about, please reach out and email guests at functionalgeekery.com and I'll put them on my notes for future episode ideas. Thank you for listening and for all your support. Welcome to Functional Geekery. I'm Russ Proctor, and this week we have Reed Evans. Reed, would you mind telling everyone a little bit about yourself? Yeah, hi, thank you so much. So basically, my name is Reed Evans. I'm a software developer in the Knoxville, Tennessee area. I'm actually a software consultant with a company called ResultStack. And I've been doing programming, I guess I started on a TI-83 calculator in like seventh grade. And since then, I've been kind of hacking away at it. I always thought it was a little... Uh, didn't really consider myself a software developer and didn't think that that's where I would end up because all through school I did music. And at some point, as I was slinging code to pay for my rent and everything during college and room and board and all that good stuff, while trying to make it as a musician, I realized that I'm making more money doing software and enjoying it more than the music. And so I kind of made the switch. And at the very end, really, I mean, I finally ended up getting a like a software engineering degree, which is nowhere near the rigor of some of the comp sci degrees that I know some of the people who have been on your podcast have. But really, that's where I started in programming and then ended up doing a lot of Delphi software development with a small independent software vendor. And I actually rage quit a kitchen job. And my dad owned a company that was doing some software development. And he was like, hey, you want to come answer phones? And that's where it all started, just being around the software. And I went from there, was doing Delphi up until like, I don't know, 07, switched over to .NET because that's where all the jobs are in Knoxville and did that for a very long time and still dabble with a lot of it. But recently, current contract that I'm with is a lot of JavaScript. So um, some of my focus has switched more towards pure functional JavaScript, I suppose, rather than some of the F sharp that I had been doing with a few clients before that and, and a lot of C sharp and that kind of stuff too. So currently it's all uh, pure functional JavaScript for me. So you get Delphi, you do .NET. What made the transition? And we're going to get into some of the other stuff you're involved with because you got your functional knocks and you've got a YouTube channel and other things going on now. But what set that stage for that first transition or first even exposure before you started to transition to the functional mindset? What were those first hints and what put that on your radar as something to look into? Yeah, I think that's a great, great question. I would say that I had been kind of functionally curious. I went to a talk, 
I don't even know how long ago it was, but it was a talk at a local conference that's here in the Knoxville area called Codestock that was given by Rachel Reese, who I know has been on your show. Um, and she was talking about F-sharp, obviously, because that's really one of the main things that she talks about as, as well as the other functional stuff. But at the time, it was an intro to F-sharp. And I had seen it when you load up Visual Studio. It's like another language. It's like, wow, that's kind of neat. And she talked about some stuff that I had no idea what she was talking about. That was all on me, not having a clue about any of these terms like currying and partial application and all of that kind of stuff that I had never even heard of those terms at the time. So that kind of, I would say, got it on my radar. I think the next year after that, I was presenting at that same conference, Codestock, and I gave a talk on, it's still very much object-oriented, very much the whole solid principles and that sort of thing. But it was on signs you should probably refactor. And looking back at it now, if anyone listening to this actually sat through that talk, like don't pay attention to what I was saying <laughs> because it wasn't awesome. But there was a guy who was in that talk came up to me and said, hey, you know, it, we, we kind of met and became like little Twitter buddies for a little bit. And his name is Carl Kim. I think I'm pronouncing that right. But he was big into F sharp and he kept tweeting about F sharp. And that, I, I was kind of like, maybe I should take a look at this a little bit more because I kind of got sick of where the whole abstraction was. You had to go create this interface and in C sharp, you know, that's in your whole other file. You're creating your interface file and then you got to create your class file and you got to do all this stuff. You end up writing all this code just to be able to have the idea of abstraction. And then when I started seeing the fact that in functional, a function is an abstraction, it was kind of like, wow, I could write a whole lot less code and do a whole lot more with it. So I think that's really where it started going. A few really, really awesome videos that I always point to, a talk by Jack Dietrich called Stop Writing Classes, which was a Python talk. But that was really, really good. And then there was another one, Practical Functional Programming by James Coughlin. Blew my mind the first I saw that. And then just started watching videos, listening to people talk, getting more and more into it. A buddy of mine that I worked with at the time, Kyle Kress, he and I kind of just started nerding out on it. I finally had someone that I worked with that was like, yeah, there's something to this. We'd come into work every day. We had our stuff that we were doing, but then we would just kind of validate stuff between each other. And it was just a really fun environment to be in. And if you're looking at these, you're getting an understanding of F-sharp. As you're still doing this stuff and you're trading these ideas back and forth with your coworker, was any of that making your way back into C-sharp? At that time, I believe probably Link was coming around. Was there stronger pushes in some of these designs that said, well, now I'm seeing stop writing classes, this presentation that's focused on a different language. But yeah, those things still apply. I'm pushing my C-sharp a little bit more, not enough that it's going to be a monstrosity. But what was that experience, if any, of rolling some of those ideas back into C-sharp as you were pushing down the F-sharp route? Yeah. So at first, I would say not at all, because at first, and I see this with a lot of people with new languages or paradigms, at first, my initial thought is, wow, this is really hard. And then my next thought after I kind of got past the syntax, because I hadn't worked with an ML language before, everything I had done was Algol or based from that, right? So at first, wow, this is hard. I don't know what any of this stuff means. I can't even parse it in my head to be able to do anything with it to this is the best thing ever and C-sharp is absolute crap. And was that way for, I won't say I was that way for a while, but not quite as zealous as maybe that sounds. 
but definitely hating working when I had to write C sharp. And then it's kind of come full circle a little bit because so actually I was just in Kansas City at KCDC, which is a big kind of general purpose conference, basically the smack dab middle of the U.S. And I actually gave a talk on writing C sharp without nulls or exceptions, which had a packed room because everyone understands that that's a problem in the language. And then as I went into it, I kind of came clean and said, uh, so this is a uh, talk about functional programming. So kind of coming back, making peace with, in fact, one of the things that I've been kind of enjoying doing is to understand some of these other concepts that I'm learning from languages like Haskell and PureScript and using Ramda Fantasy and some of these things with these higher level abstractions and types is to try to port them back into C Sharp. Because I feel like if I can take these ideas that are simple or that are in a language that makes these concepts simple and I can port them back into a language like C Sharp, which wasn't really designed to do that, then one, I understand C Sharp better. And two, I have to understand what that concept is. So I've kind of come a little bit full circle to where, I mean, there is still definite value in F Sharp from the defaults of the language versus C Sharp, the defaults of not having null, immutable data, you know, all of these functional concepts the language's defaults definitely matter. But I guess I've kind of made peace with C-sharp and still enjoy writing C-sharp. I'd prefer F-sharp, but, you know, C-sharp is, uh, they're doing some good things there too. And then what were some of those things that kind of helped set the stage? You mentioned seeing the, if I got to do an interface and got to go create another class and put it somewhere else, and depending on how you write your interfaces, you may or may not be having other pain points about abstractions. You're looking at F-sharp. What was some of the stuff that set that foundation? And after you got familiar with some of the basics and the syntax with F-sharp that said, okay, now I can see all those pain points I had over here, especially if you're giving this refactoring to solid talk and moving over to F-sharp. What were some of those things that kind of either you already started stumbling upon and doing in an OO way or just other pain points that you had that when you started to understand F-sharp better, either highlighted the things you started going down that were right or highlighted the things that, wow, I'm doing this way, way wrong and there's an easier way. Eventually, I might be able to figure out how to port it back to C-sharp, but at this point, I know that I can see what's wrong with this stuff or what's right with this stuff. So one of the big ones for me was doing the solid thing. The I is interface segregation principle. And for me, the way to make sure that your interfaces are segregated is to have interfaces that only have one method. And if you have an interface that only has one method and you're trying to have interfaces talk with interfaces, then you're basically doing functional programming anyway. You're just doing it with a lot more typing in a language that it's the same thing, right? It's not that object-oriented and functional programming are on opposite ends of the spectrum. The underlying stuff, there's a lot of similarities there. And you can achieve similar things. You can write pure functions in C Sharp. Absolutely, you can. The language doesn't help you or force you to do any of those. You have to have the diligence to do it. But it's absolutely possible. And so for me, that was one of the big ones is when I realized that if I have a function from A to B for whatever A and whatever B, I can replace that with any other function from A to B. And that function, I don't have to say that it's part of an interface. I don't don't have to write any of that other stuff. It's just I can program with the types and that just all works. And for me, that was one of the big things that I saw that I liked enough to get me to where I was like, hey, this is pretty cool. And then I saw Scott Veloshin, who I also think has been on your podcast. 
his railway oriented programming. And I, I was like, one utter disbelief that you could write code that way because I had never seen anything like it in enterprise land in Knoxville, Tennessee, which despite what you might believe is not the uh, hotbed of forward thinking uh, when it comes to computer science. So going that route and then seeing that railway oriented programming and just, I mean, I binge read that on like a Saturday with, you know, wife and kids trying to get me to play and do other stuff. And I'm like, no, no, Saturday is usually their time, but I just went all in on it, really enjoyed it. And that's what really made the push for me to get F sharp writing it in my day job, actually, was being able to show some of that stuff, show the type providers was another big thing for getting into F sharp as well. But to be able to push those things and to be able to prove and go to management and say, look, for these very, very concrete reasons, this is why for this project, F sharp is a better fit than C sharp, because this project has a lot of data and we can use type providers to eliminate a whole class of bugs. And then we can use this railway oriented programming thing to greatly clean up all the business logic and everything. So those were really the defining things, I guess, for me to really jump all the way into F sharp at the time from C sharp. And those are the things that really got me into it. And you mentioned the interface segregation principle. Were you already going down that route of pretty much an interface with just one method or function on it? And you just noticed that proliferation everywhere and your team noticed it. So when you came back, you're like, look, we're already going down this route and this can clean it up. Or was that something that said, well, interface aggregation principle, yeah, we went from down from 50 methods on this interface to 10, but we're still not at that one thing. So what did that look like with that? And then how much of that foundation in that sense was set when you took it back to say, here's what we're seeing on our stuff and here's how much more simply we can do. Because if we're already going down this route for things like interface segregation principle and we're already leaning towards this track, makes that F-sharp sale easier or harder. Yeah, so I think the fact that we were interested in that, and and I should say that between the two, there was kind of a switch in teams at the time too, but going down that route, at that time I went from what I think of as very traditional enterprise developer position that I was in I was a team lead on a small team that the company who I worked for had no idea that we probably existed because there were so many layers of middle management. But going from that to a very fast-paced agency mindset where the value was in the client wants this, we need to deliver it to the client rather than more of an enterprise thing. Let's make sure that our velocity is good and let's plan for this specific sprint. It's like, no, 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 no the client needs this, let's get it done. And I think from that standpoint, when I was able to show, so to set the stage for what ultimately sold it was we were transforming some data from an old system to a new system that we were going to build for the client, the old system they had outgrown and we were going all new. And so I was given a week to transfer data from the old system to the new system. And I'd seen some stuff on type providers and I thought, Hey, this is going to get used once. Might as well learn something about type providers. And I had all of the transformation for all of it done in a day. And so then there's four other days that the company can use me to work on other things rather than, yeah, it took me a fifth of the time that they had allotted. They're obviously seeing value there. And then my point was, well, let's just create a little F-sharp DLL, just like a class library or whatever. Let's create the F-sharp DLL that's just for the data access And then we'll just call that from C-sharp. And I put together a really quick proof of concept that showed that that worked. 
And then it's like, now we don't have to deal with any data access problems. Like if it doesn't compile, if we're out of sync, then it won't compile. And with way less ceremony than what you would get with the traditional ORMs from .NET. And I got buy-in on that because I had proven that we thought it would take a week. And instead, even in a language that one, I didn't know that well yet. Two, was still struggling to try to figure some stuff out. And three, that at the time really didn't have very good support with Visual Studio. There were the power tools at the time, which helped a ton. But with all of those three things, I was still able to produce that much faster, five times faster. And it was right. And it worked the first time. That's a pretty easy sell when you're in an environment whose primary focus is on delivering software, not delivering story points or something similar to that. So that was the sell, basically. And I started with that. And then at the same time, I was like, that's when Railway-Oriented Programming came in. And I was like, I kind of want to do this for like all my business logic now, too, because the C-sharp I was writing was doing something very similar, much more of like a tuple approach coming from more like the Erlang, where everything's like you've got an atom that's okay or error or whatever, and then the value. So I was already doing that kind of stuff anyway. And then with the Railway-Oriented Programming stuff in F-sharp, I was able to just kind of continue writing F-sharp because the code kept going out ahead of schedule. And so if you're doing this, you're learning this on your own. If the agency is interested in it because it's, hey, hey, you're five times faster. Once that starts propagating, how big was that team? And what was that distribution of knowledge and sharing this idea and spreading this out to the rest of the team? And what did that look like? Was that just you off and you're like, I'm going to just do the separate component first? Or are you pretty much the single person responsible for this product? Or was there a team of five or 10 other people that you kind of had to either cohorts because you're all working on separate projects, but kind of like, okay, you're doing this. You've also got some extra days. Go bring these people in and transition. What was that transition to spread that knowledge around that started building, I'll call it the Pico community of just the workplace before you start to do some of this broader community building? in Knoxville around functional programming and your learnings? Yeah. So we were a very, very small team. It's interesting because we did some things to try to spread that knowledge, but the company that I worked for was primarily a PHP and well, primarily a front-end shop, but most of the back-end stuff that they had was PHP because they did a lot of content management system stuff. And so PHP, that's like, if you want a content management system, like PHP's got a thousand of them that are all pretty good, you know? And so we ended up doing a lot in some of it in .NET for some other stuff. This project didn't have anything to do with the CMS. But I say all that to say there was really only like one and a half other .NET developers even in the company. What I did find interesting, though, is that as I got more into functional programming and I get the QA and the QA managers and everyone's coming back in and validating the code after it's done and they're saying, well, you know, you just don't have that many bugs anymore. And so then other developers who were JavaScript developers or PHP developers are coming to me and it's like, what's this thing that you're doing? I'm like, well, it's, it's called functional programming. And, and so we start going into it. And it's really interesting because the shift while I was there, and, and I definitely do not attribute this to me. I think it's industry-wide shifting that way, but is from everything has to be mutable and object-oriented and everything should be object-oriented to now I'm hearing, you know, they're using Cycle.js and Folktale for some validation. And like, 
it's really neat to see all of that happening. So it wasn't so much that I was able to sell F sharp to the other people, but the general concepts around functional programming were definitely disseminated from that standpoint. And I think too, that because that was my experience, it really helped to see, going back to your previous point about C sharp and F sharp and coming back to C sharp with F sharp ideas, I was always doing that because there wasn't really anyone else that I was in an office with that was doing much F sharp. So to have to take whatever terms I had and make them in terms of JavaScript or C sharp or whatever other languages that they were working with kind of had me already thinking about this idea that there's some underlying kind of theory that can be used amongst all these different languages. And then we'll get to the functional knocks in a little bit, but I want to set the stage a little bit more about transitioning these people, sharing these ideas, folding it back in. You talk about sharing it with PHP developers at the time and JavaScript developers at the time. You've moved into JavaScript and are doing a lot of functional JavaScript. That gets into, there's one of these cruxes of, there's functional JavaScript and functional programming in general, but between JavaScript and F-sharp, there's that big divide of type support and how you actually have railway-oriented programming and being able to do, whether it's not, even if it's not type providers, but be able to type classes and summon product types and be able to have some of these expressiveness that you talked about that you're like, I even miss these in C-sharp as opposed to a bunch of interfaces. Well, now you're going to the dynamic side of JavaScript. What were some of those things you saw in, I guess, first, spreading the functional ideas to other developers who are coming from the dynamic side and helping them understand, and then some of the differences that you see and how you account for them or embrace the differences of the static ML family functional programming to the wheels off, anything goes, you have type coercions in JavaScript that you may or may not even want. What was some of that transition like for you in setting the stage there? Yes. So I'll say when I first started doing JavaScript, it was, I don't know which ES number it was, but it was not fun at all. (laughs) But I'll say that I was very fortunate that when I finally started getting paid to have JavaScript and writing JavaScript be my day job, it was ES6 is what we're doing, right? Everyone's ES6, right? We've got plugins, we got Babel, we've got all these different things. But a lot of the things in ES6 solve a lot of problems. It's really interesting. So obviously I've read, went through the Professor Frisbee thing to see how he was writing these pure functional applications and all of these concepts that I had been doing in F-sharp and twiddling around some with Pascal and some with PureScript and how he could do that stuff and then do it in JavaScript. And, you know, it's interesting because with these libraries that we have like Ramda and Ramda Fantasy, In a lot of ways, this pure functional JS that I'm doing, while it doesn't have the static types, so I don't have a compiler to help me with the types so much, I'm dealing with the shape of the data, not so much what type I've told the compiler that it has to be, or with Henley Milder that, you know, the compiler's inferred about my type. I am dealing with the shape of data, which is, that's a mind shift, but it's almost like, it's the closest thing to Haskell that I've ever been paid to write. Because Ramda and Ramda Fantasy really allow you to have type classes for the first time. Or you can fake type classes, I will say, because as we're talking about shapes of data, the shapes line up, and so you're fine to do all of these things. You can map over any functor. You don't have to say, like from an F-sharp standpoint, 
I would have to say sequence.map or option.map. I don't have to do that. I can just say map. And that seems really trivial. But for me, there was a mind block there because when I was constantly aware of the fact that I was dealing with a list or an option or whatever else, rather than, hey, I've got a functor here, I can map. When I made that shift, I don't think I would have gotten to that shift if I had stayed in F-sharp. That's not a knock on that language. There's very real reasons why that language does not have this higher kind of type thing. But in JavaScript, I didn't have to worry about that as much. I could just say, look, I got a future of a maybe of an option of an array, and I want to deal with each item in the array. Okay, well, I'll just call map four times and then pass my function. You know, I don't have to think that it's in all of this stuff. I just know that it's in this nested thing somewhere. Somewhere at the bottom, there's a value, and I got a whole nested thing of functors. Let's just map until we get to what the value is. And that was really freeing to me and really just feel like just really accelerated my growth in functional programming. And now taking that concept and going back to a Haskell or pure script, it's like I've got the best linter that I could come up with that's added into my JavaScript because of, I guess, my journey through what I've been doing. There are plenty of times where I'm like, man, just a little bit of static type would be really, really nice right now, <laughs> especially when you go through some of the bugs. I definitely say that my main thing for doing a lot of teaching in JavaScript and that sort of thing is I've given many presentations on F sharp at general purpose conferences. I was fortunate enough to be able to speak at LambdaConf a few years ago as well on F sharp. What I will say is that for me as someone who wants to teach people and hopefully, you know, help people learn, you know, it's a much bigger ocean in JavaScript. There's several billion JavaScript developers, uh, or however many of them. And there's not that many F-sharp developers. So that was really the impetus for me going into more of the teaching with a JavaScript. And even now teaching functional programming concepts in C-sharp, because there's just more C-sharp developers. The F-sharp developers, I'm preaching to the choir. They already know these things, right? The people who are curious in that. They already know these concepts, or they're already interested in them. And so... Maybe try to convert some other people there. But yeah, I mean, as far as the types, types are great. But types, I have not yet been paid to program in a language that has types that are sufficiently advanced enough to allow me to do some of the things that I get for free with JavaScript, such as the shape of the data coming in. You can do that in some of the, PureScript has this. Actually, TypeScript has it as well. But, you know, this whole concept of, hey, I want some data that looks kind of like this, and that's what I want to operate on. I've never programmed professionally in a statically typed language that would allow me to do that. So I think that would be the ultimate. And you mentioned ECMAScript 6, and I know some functional people have pros and cons about that because you have now officially classes, which pushes some people down more the object-oriented route, and then you have the getter and setter stuff that's not actually functional so you can't actually compose those things at all so if you have mixed minds about which route to go with javascript ecmascript 6 can either make your world a whole lot nicer or a whole lot messier so around that what are some of the things you found that kind of help navigate some of those features on even bringing in things like ramda and ramda fantasy versus just people who are borderline with underscore or low dash and may or may not even take advantage of map and filter and select and reduce and all these other things that even underscore or low dash just gives you at a basic level but are still intent on writing for loops in JavaScript. 
what was some of that transition of how you're seeing this functionality and balance of JavaScript being a bunch of different things and getting people to be able to take advantage of Ramda and introducing it and taking advantage of these types as opposed to, well, now we've got this other kind of style of JavaScript in these projects because people are coming in, we're either getting new hires, we've got to train these people up, or we've got existing people who haven't quite made the jump and are still fighting for an older or newer or different style of JavaScript. Yeah, so something that I should say about what I'm doing is a lot of what I'm doing is consulting work. So from a team standpoint, people are paying me to, they're doing a lot of finished product stuff. That said, by the time that I got into the JavaScript and we had ES6 and we had proper classes, I was already kind of against the idea of adding class to the language because truthfully, JavaScript was the first place that I had seen passing a function as a first class thing. So, or that I knowingly saw that you know, another one of the kind of mind shattering moments or whatever that you could do that. So as far as trying to get people sold on it, you know, I don't know. I mean, I kind of think in a lot of ways I try to introduce new ideas and, and I think, well, they're not new ideas. None of these ideas are new, right? But introduce other people to ideas that maybe they haven't seen before with the intent that I want to kind of simultaneously make things seem obvious and shatter their minds at the same time. And that's really, really difficult to do. And I don't, it may be a paradox that might not be possible, but that's kind of, especially in presentations, that's usually what I go for. As far as the different styles of JavaScript that you can do, I mean, that's one of the things that I kind of like about JavaScript, really. It's this ultimate creative playground. If you want to treat, you know, so a lot of the stuff that I do is what I've heard termed structural recursion, basically. So I create this object and I basically recurse through the object to define what is going to happen. And so you don't really miss types as much because you're dealing with the shape of your data and you're performing actions because of the shape of the data that you're dealing with. You know, I don't know. I don't know that there's a right way or a wrong way or, or whatever you write JavaScript. The way that I write it, you will not find the class keyword in my JavaScript. Well, and if you're coming in as a consultant, I don't know if that's a team of people coming in and you're delivering a project just by this team. So it's like, we've got a set way of doing things or it's, we're coming in and now we've got to work with an existing team and kind of meld those two together. And that's kind of where I was wondering of bringing that in. Cause I know you also have a YouTube channel, which you try and explain this stuff, but there's explaining it to people who are kind of curious and interested. And again, seek out that YouTube channel versus no, 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 I'm doing classes. I'm doing modules with functions that give me objects and pre-ES6 classes. Where is that falling on some of these things when you're trying to integrate and say, well, here's low dash underscore, if not full on Ramda and making that sell to coworkers or establishing a relatively consistent or at least a walled off garden in the segment area of a code base. Where's that falling with you? And how have you found advocating these ideas in those scenarios? Yeah, that's a great question. And I think the walled garden approach is probably pretty good. I'll say that a lot of what I get asked to do is greenfield stuff. So that makes it easy. When I'm not doing greenfield, unless you're able to have something that is very much a walled garden or some shared reusable function or something that can be used by a bunch of different people, I think functional programming is is amazing. I think everyone should be writing pure functions all the time. I think they're going to be happy once they get there. 
But if you're on a project that's already existing and you all of a sudden have, what was Reed writing here? Well, I don't even know what this means, which is not to say that we should pander to a junior developer's aesthetic or anything. It has nothing to do with seniority level. It's just at some point the program needs to be at least somewhat consistent, at least within a specific module or however it's broken up. It obviously will completely depend upon the project. But I think you definitely want to coming in and being a new person on a team. For me, I'm going to take a backseat role. This team is established. They've obviously been producing software. They've got their structures and everything in place. If it's that sort of case, it's a completely different scenario than if I'm Greenfield. If I'm Greenfield, you tell me JavaScript, that's fine, but it's going to be pure functional JavaScript. So that's where I would land on that. And then in those two scenarios, there's Greenfield, and then I hand it over, but now I have to explain Ramda and make that transition, even if it's Greenfield. It's all consistent across this project, but we may have senior or principal who still never made that functional transition. And then like to hear some of that experience, but also the, if you take a back seat, how do you approach and say, even if it's like your C sharp stuff where you were going through and saying, we've got this stuff. Can we pull at least pull this out to pure methods and here's some test differences. What are the two different approaches that you have there on some of that stuff at a high level and things you found helpful? Because if we have people who listen to this and do JavaScript because they can't pull in Elm or PureScript or whatever they might ideally like to do on their own, there's that sale of we got to all work in a team. How do I help advocate this, share this knowledge and some of those things that work well for the handoff and transition and getting people to at least shift over just a little bit, even if they haven't drank all the Kool-Aid. Yes. What I have found is that completely depends upon the language and the community around the language. With JavaScript, the community is embracing functional like no other open type of language. And I mean, open in the sense of to the other question of, you know, you've got classes, you can do OO, you know, with the prototypical inheritance. That may be the wrong way to say that, but (laughs) with prototype inheritance. And then you can also do purely functional stuff. So for that community, it's much more like, hey, did you know that this is this thing that you can do? That seems to sell better. And I've had a lot more success there with that. For the .NET community, my experience, obviously I can't speak for the whole community, but my experience has been they don't want to change. They want to write the code that Microsoft wants them to write. And it's that community. There's a lot of value in that because they feel validated by this because there's this big company that's writing software this way and they can follow through that. So as far as embracing a little bit more purity in the .NET world, one way to do that that I've had some success with is showing how easy unit tests are. So if you have a pure function or a method, or and I try not to use the word function when I'm making this cell, I don't want anyone to get too antsy. But it's to show how easy it would be to unit test something and to show that all of these things with inversion of control and all of these other things and mocks and everything else are just ways to allow you to unit test. And if you had a pure method or a pure function, you wouldn't have to even deal with the mocking of any of those things. You could just test it immediately. So that's where I've had more success on the .NET side. So it really it just all depends all depends on the specific person that you're dealing with or you're, you're talking to. But then past that, I have noticed some things. You know, there are people who are going to gravitate to a, a language like JavaScript where you can do anything you want versus people who are going to choose 
all in on Windows and .NET and that sort of stuff. So I think there's some underlying motivations that each of them have. But for me, yeah, .NET community loves unit tests and doing that kind of stuff. And so even without doing any scary functional stuff or bringing in any other libraries or using any of the implementations of maybe or either or IO or any of these things I've written in C Sharp, just showing that if they write a pure method, it's easier to reason about that code and it's easier to depend on it. And you've got a YouTube channel as well where you're advocating some of this stuff. You're sharing your knowledge and you're pushing the functional JavaScript and you're helping to build and educate the community. And some of that gets back to these experiences that you've had with introducing it to coworkers or these other teams you're consulting with. I'm sure some of this is coming from the functional knock side as well. So I don't know if we want to start with the functional knocks and some of those lessons you've learned for um, putting on a user group and trying to sell this at a local community level and those lessons and problems you've encountered or work backwards from your YouTube and start talking about how you're selling this and then go back. So I'll let you kind of take that community and sharing lessons learned and approach it from whichever direction makes sense to start the explanation from or when you're going out and advocating these ideas and lessons learned that you're putting on meetings and user groups and YouTube channels to sell this and back into however those lessons were acquired to begin with. Yeah, so I would say let's just go uh, chronologically. So the user group happened. I spoke at CodeMash in Ohio, I don't know, two or three years ago now, two and a half years ago, maybe, and had no business speaking at a conference that big. But the talk went really well, and it was the biggest thing I had ever seen when I gave it. But on the drive up and drive back down, I was listening to Tribes by uh, Seth Godin. And this concept of, you know, I'd really like to get a functional group started, and I don't even know what that necessarily means, but, you know, maybe there's some other people who are somewhat interested in it, and maybe we can get together and kind of chat and share stories. And, you know, I had mentioned that I was working with my buddy Kyle. He had moved. He's now, actually, I don't know where he is now, but he had moved to Colorado for a job. And so I was looking for just some other people to where we could get around and just chat. The hallway track kind of thing was all I wanted it. I said, you know, if two people show up, I'll be happy. And as it turns out, the first meeting that we had, there were like four people there. And so we kind of have this half of our meetings. We just do very, very informal. We just chat about stuff. What have you been working on? It doesn't even have to be functional. Just like, what are you working on? Let's just chat about stuff. There's enough people who are functional zealots in the, in the house that, that the conversation naturally comes back to it. Because a lot of times it's like, you have to show where the pain is with what someone's doing right now. And a lot of times they don't know that they're enduring that pain, sort of a, you know, the Stockholm syndrome kind of thing. So with that, a lot of times it's hearing them talk about what their pain points are and then saying, oh, well, you know, applicatives would solve this problem for you or whatever it happens to be. Right. So that's kind of where it came from. And it's just a lot of people sitting around and chatting. Um, and then the other half of our meetings that we do the first, I think it's Tuesday of every month, we do more of a presentation style format. And to that, I will plug that we are absolutely open to remote presentations. So Knoxville's kind of a difficult city to get to from an airfare standpoint. And so if anyone is at all interested, definitely reach out to me uh, because we'd love to have some people get some knowledge from all over the country and beyond with some of that. But so that's what we do then. And it's interesting. Those seem to be more, more people attend those. But we don't get the consistent people. It's always the same group of people, you know, with plus or minus a couple 
that want to come and just do the hallway track versus the people who want to go and come and listen to a, a presentation or attend a workshop at night. So we kind of split it up and really we're just trying a lot of different things. See what sticks, see what people like, see what's getting people interested in it. Um, you can't teach them anything if they're not hearing what you're saying or they're not where you are to talk to them about it. And so that's what I've done a lot with it. We've got people in all different various levels of functional programming, some that some that swear they're not functional programmers. And then when they talk about the stuff, I'm like, yeah, you're doing functional programming. You're just making it really, really hard on yourself, like I was doing for a while. So it's just a lot of fun and learning from other people. Because when you're doing it that way, the big win from the user group stuff for me and, and the conferences is I get to scale my knowledge uh, and my learning because I'm now hearing from a lot of other people what their experiences were, what their pain points were that I might not get if I were just stuck in my cube um, like I was for a long time. So what are some of those pain points? And I think this leads into that transition of setting up to actually have a YouTube channel where you're presenting some of these topics. If you're, you've got your pain points, but you've expanded to the user group. And now, as you said, you get to hear a lot more people's pain points and things that click versus don't click when they're being approached. What were some of those ideas and lessons and takeaway for the listeners in the larger community that say, here's some of the things that I found. Maybe these other approaches will help you as that have led you to go in and do a YouTube channel on functional programming in JavaScript because that's the big C. Yeah, I think the first one that comes to mind is the stuff with IOC containers and dependency injection and ORMs and all of this magic-y kind of stuff. I think those are there. Null references, constantly having to do try catches around everything and all of those kind of things where you're writing code, but you're writing a whole lot more code to define what your program isn't than what your program is. And I see those time and time again. But the thing is, is if all you've ever known is that this thing throws an exception, I better write a try catch around it then you don't even know that that's a pain point that could be solved. And even Microsoft with the null reference exception, like on their documentation page, it says that null reference exception is the fault of the developer, right? It's like, no, no, it's, it's not. It's possible to have languages that don't have null. And in fact, a lot of languages don't have null. And rather than trying to say that they have to have some sort of diligence and that it's their fault that they're not a good enough developer, it's like, you could have resolved this problem by making them use something like a pure script or a Haskell or, you know, whatever else that maybe doesn't have those sort of pitfalls that are just everywhere. I think those are some of the big ones, right? It's the same ones over and over again of, you know, I had this no reference exception and who knew, who knew that that was going to happen? Or this thing threw an exception. Why did it throw an exception? And they're things that aren't codified into some sort of a type system. If you have a type system or they're just these things that you can't account for unless you know what the implementation of a method or a function is. Like that was the whole selling point for object-oriented is that it was black boxes and you didn't have to know that. But then it seems like on one hand we're saying you don't have to know what the implementation is. But then on the other hand we're saying, yeah, except that the implementation is such that if you do these three things in a succession, then it throws an exception because you shouldn't have done that. But there's nothing to tell me that I shouldn't have done that. And that's the kind of software that I don't think anyone or that anyone really wants to deal with. And so we're coming up on time. I know there's one other topic you probably want to at least put out there and discuss, but, and we can either bring that up separately or we can address that here. But is there anything that we haven't brought up specifically or 
points that we think we need to go back and reemphasize before we start to wrap up the episode? Not that I know of. I mean, I think those are the big things. That's basically what I'm doing right now. The YouTube channel, so I push out a pure functional video. It's a short video, four to ten minutes. I try not to let them get anywhere near ten minutes, but sometimes it happens. So there's one every day of the work week, so Monday through Friday, every day. And I've been doing that. Actually, as we've been talking, episode, I think, 41 just went out because my phone started buzzing. A few people liking it, uh, which is good. So, yes, basically doing that, still doing some conference stuff with Functional Knox. You know, we're in the very, very early stages of trying to get a uh, functional conference in Knoxville going. So hopefully I'll have some more stuff. You do a great job of mentioning all the upcoming conferences. So hopefully one day one of those will be there. But really, it's just an extension of enjoying this meetup space of really curious and intelligent people wanting to get better at this job. And we want people from Knoxville's kind of this small little area. And I'd love to get more input from places outside of the Knoxville area. And the thought being, eh, you know what? It's not too cheap to fly here, but uh, once you're here, everything's really cheap. So maybe we can make a go of it and try to do something there. And that functional Knox conference is the topic I was saying. We'll probably dig in a little bit more. Yeah. Just at a high level, you're looking at it for next year. What was the motivation? You kind of talked about wanting it broader, but what was the motivation of wanting it broader? Is that pulling in people from Nashville and the surrounding area and having a small regional mini conference? Things like getting an extra 50 people to come in versus looking at something a little bigger? Do you have any tease and description of functional locks that you want to kind of put out there at a high level just so people can keep it on their radar and look for things like should I even think about looking for the CFP? What do you want to tease about that, even though it's still in the early works, as you said, just to keep it in people's radar and plant that seed in their mind if that's appropriate for them? Sure. So one of the main things that I wanted to do, so most of the conference presenting that I do is at general purpose conferences. So 80% of what I do is sell why functional programming rather than being able to explain some cool things in functional programming, right? So what we're hoping to do with functional Knox is to get a very, very small, very you know, like one day, one track kind of conference where people can come and just be immersed in functional programming for the day. And not so much a, we're going to sell you on functional programming. If you're interested in functional programming already, the idea being that it's not going to be a sales pitch. It's going to be like, hey, let's learn some stuff. Let's see some cool stuff. Here's some things that are coming out in programming language theory that are on the horizons, right? Let's see someone get up there and rock out some Idris code and just blow everyone's minds. Let's see some free monads. Let's see some of this stuff that you're never going to get to present on or see at a general purpose conference, that it requires a functional conference because otherwise very few people would attend those kind of sessions in a general purpose. So we, just, we wanted it to be a little bit more focused and that's where we're trying to go with it, I think. So yeah, going forward, that's the idea. And so far, all roads look very, very positive for us doing this. And are you seeing this as kind of a multidisciplinary conference? So is it functional programming in Python or JavaScript or Ruby versus high school in Idris? And it's like, however you're applying this, come share how you're applying this. Or is there a more focused kind of thing that you're hoping for? Yeah, the hope would be that it is not specific to any language. The hope is that it's much more 
here are functional concepts that can be used in a lot of different languages. Now, there may be some language that allows, I mean, if you're going to get up there and show dependent types, your selection of languages that you could choose to show that versus languages you could choose to show a function are going to be obviously constrained. But the idea being lots of different new ideas or novel ideas for people, not new ideas. Although if we could get some new ideas, that'd be that'd be icing on the cake. But I'm not sure that that's going to happen, especially in a first year kind of thing. But yeah, no, it's much more on the concepts of some of these things and what you can do with them rather than a sales pitch for a specific language necessarily. Maybe a sales pitch for a concept, a sales pitch for why dependent types are awesome. That'd be great, but not so much. Here's why Elm's awesome. Unless it's to say that there's this feature that is awesome. That's not to say we don't want Elm. Absolutely. Submit sessions where Elm is the language of choice. But the idea is not so much to show a specific language unless there's something just incredible that only that language has or something like that. And that makes sense. And I want to make just give enough tease for people so they can watch out for when those announcements and listen for when the announcements come out about more information for this. and get those things churning in the back of my mind because sometimes it might take a, hey, this sounds interesting. Let's get some budget saved off so I can actually make the trip to this conference. So it's always nice to have that heads up of knowing what conferences are out there versus, oh, this thing's coming up in a month. Well, that would have been cool. I guess I'll just watch the videos. Right, right. Yeah, and two, you know, I mean, like I say, it is very early days, but the more people that get interested in what the idea is, it kind of keeps me honest and makes me, you know, follow through with what these plans are. So, uh yeah, the best way to follow through on something is to get started and make it public that you're starting it. So for all the listeners out there, hold me to it. <laughs> or I'm sure that it helps with the venue thing. If enough people know about it, you're like, oh, yeah, we've got interest from 500 people versus the 75 people we thought. If we have 500, we have to drastically change our ideas of what we're doing. <laughs> That's a whole different venue. <laughs> but it's it's also nice to know that early versus after kind of thing. That is that is very true. If there are 500 people out there who want to come, definitely let me know as soon as possible because the venue that we're looking at will not hold that many. <laughs> so we've covered a lot of your stuff. We've kind of plugged your functional JavaScript, functional locks, this upcoming conference. Is there any other things that you're involved with that you want to make mention to? Are there any other conferences that you're going to be going to as just a attendee or a presenter that people might find you at in the next six months or whatever's on your radar, depending on these conferences? Is there anything else that we need to just at least allude to for where people can find you or things they should know about? Yeah, so I did a lot of conference stuff earlier in the year. And actually, with as of a couple of weeks ago, I don't have any planned for the upcoming year. I have several that I've submitted to, so fingers crossed that they like what I've submitted, but I don't have anything there. What I would say is that we would love to see you, if people are interested, our Functional Knox meetups that are at night. If you're in an area that doesn't have a functional conference or user group or whatever, we would love to broadcast those. YouTube, you can join in from wherever we're not trying to constrain the knowledge to where we are. We've done that several times now with um, some universities in Tennessee, Tennessee Tech. I know we did with their functional group for one of the first ones. Our first meetup ever was actually a remote session from my buddy Kyle from he was in Boulder at the time. So if you're interested in any of that, please reach out to me. We can make that stuff available. I try to make you as much part of the group as is possible over the Internet with screen sharing and stuff like that. And then where can people find you online and 
maybe the functional knocks, your YouTube videos, blogs, best social media things to follow along and keep up to date as you start to announce details around your learnings, your sharings, the user groups, whatever else you're involved with. Yeah, so on Twitter, I'm at Reed N. Evans. It's R-E-I-D, the letter N, and then E-V-A-N-S. And then my YouTube channel, you can go to tinyurl.com slash Reed YouTube, or you could probably just search for me on YouTube. I have Google myself, full disclosure. I haven't actually YouTube myself. I was just hoping there would be something funny about someone else with the name Reed Evans. But you can find me on those two places. And then Functional Knox, we're on Twitter. It's at Functional Knox, just like it sounds, K-N-O-X. There is a silent K in Knoxville. And yeah, stay tuned there for any uh, updates about that. And I think those are basically it. If you want to get in touch with me, Twitter is the place to do it. And then, yeah, if you're interested in any of the stuff of Functional Knox, we monitor the channel. We don't tweet very much from it, but definitely monitor it. And we'll be hearing some more stuff from that account if and when this conference gets going, for sure. And I'll get all of those links added to the show notes so people can track them down and find them without having to go back and find where we mention everything in the audio. I'd like to give a giant thank you to David Belcher for the logo. And once again, thank you, Reed, for taking the time to join me today. It was a pleasure talking with you, and it's always interesting to see how people get involved in functional programming, some of those first exposures, and especially when they go on to build a community and lessons learned and things shared from building that community and going on and trying to just spread the knowledge and share the love of functional programming and those things that excite you and you find make it easier to do your job day in and day out. So thanks for giving your time to join me today. I'm sure we'll have to get you back on in the future to talk about Functional Knox Conference after it happened or if you start to broadcast these meetups, some of those lessons learned and things to share for anybody else who's doing a meetup and says, oh, yeah, here's here's what worked well, here's what didn't, or anything else you're doing in the future. So thanks for taking your time to join me today. It was a pleasure talking with you. Yeah, same to you. I really appreciated it. Thank you very much. Until next time, this has been Functional Geekery.